It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. What's up? We're back with the Locked On Celtics podcast with the Rain and Jays. Today, it's me, Jay King from MassLive.com. We're going to have a special guest joining us today, the, the longtime voice of the Boston Celtics radio voice, Sean Grandy. Just one of the best to do it. Super hardworking guy. I, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, but you should. As, as one of my followers once said, his Twitter PR is the best in the business. Grandy works harder than anybody, captures the spirit of a game. I, I grew up, you know, listening in high school to, to games he was calling, even before high school a little bit. Sorry, sorry, Sean. That might make you feel a little old, man. Uh, but he's so good, and it's an honor to have him on the podcast. He gave some great stories about Wally Serbiak. Wally Serbiak, people. Uh, Kevin Garnett, obviously, you got to talk about the Kevin Garnett stories. With a guy who announced Garnett not only with the Celtics, but when he was during his younger years in Minnesota. Uh, so just some great stories from, from Sean. And without further ado, here's that interview. All right, so we're here with Sean Grandy, longtime voice of the Boston Celtics. One of the hardest workers in the business. He does, he calls MMA, he calls hockey. He calls football. Is there a sport you don't call, Sean? Let's see. I've never done golf. I've never done. Well, you know what? Here's the thing, Jay. They're <laughs> inventing new sports all the time. Like I haven't called drone racing because that's new, <laughs> and I haven't called like the video game, the video game stuff. That's new. And Jarebko is going to get me into his thing. I'm sure he's going to be recruiting me. To, yeah, you got to be know, the esports, be the, the, be the voice of esports. Exactly. You know that's coming. So. <laughs> All right, so one thing I'm not sure a lot of people know is when you started as the voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves, you were just 28 years old. I think you were the third youngest person ever to be a radio play-by-play guy in the NBA. Is that right? Well, it was TVJ, if you want to be you know, oh, it was TV, okay. <laughs> exactly accurate about it. But <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, it's really funny you phrase it that way. I actually think I was 27 when I started there. Um I don't actually know that. I know that I was the youngest because they always told me, and I've always seen the same bio stuff that you're reading on Wikipedia or whatever, because if it's on the Internet, it has to be true, that if (laughs) uh, I was the young, I know I was the youngest guy in the league for like three years until Chris Carino came in, but I never, I'm not sure who was younger. I'm sure guys have been younger. Kevin Harlan was very young when he came in the league with Kansas City. I think there was a guy named Charlie Slows who does the Washington Nationals now. Um, I think he was pretty young when he was in the league, but I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Who were the youngest? You know, the youngest guys to be a team. Marv, Marv was obviously very young when he started. I'm not sure if he was 
26 or 27 or whatever, but I never thought of it that way other than I see all you guys running around with your your fancy internet and your podcasting or whatever, and I just realized that I'm just old now. It doesn't matter how young I was then. Yeah, back in the day, we're so fancy with our podcast these days, man. <laughs> okay, so in your opinion, what allowed you? Why to is podcast? it it took you so long? By the way, how many? I have a question for you. How many episodes in are you now? Uh, what episode that, number is this? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. I, I could count them up. And uh, yet, this <laughs> this is the first time. I mean. Seriously, this is the, it took me this long to get on the list to be to on be the fair, show. I mean, to be fair, this don't, is <laughs> don't you this, don't you don't you know who I think I am? To to be fair, there aren't a lot of guests that we hype up, and I, I just hyped you up on Twitter, man. This, this is a big time guest for us. I thought you'd be at threat to those seats you have for the Red Sox. I thought you'd be like at Springsteen or Adele or something. Fancy I'm just seats. glad you could squeeze me in. My buddy, my buddy's father has had season tickets to the Red Sox for like 40 years, and he never invited me until last night. So I, that that's kind of like your your podcast invite, man. Like like he had he had these seats right behind home plate, and he never invited me until last night. So it was awesome, but come on, man. Invite me a little earlier. He's probably listening to this podcast. I, I went into this. I, I went in. I went into the business in the first place because I couldn't get like my whole childhood was trying to sneak into good seats at Shea Stadium or Madison Square Garden, and I could never, you know, I never had enough money to tip an usher. I'd scout out seats for like four innings that I knew were empty, and we try to sneak down there and just get kicked right out. And I'm pretty sure that was my origin of getting into the business was just trying to get good seats, which ironically I no longer have at the Garden. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> That, that's one thing I actually wanted to ask you about was that's another thing a lot of people don't know your spot to call games in Boston is just brutal like you are tucked in the corner so far away from the action they, it can't be good sight lines over there like like you're you're looking through like a railing have you ever thought like what the hell man they could make this a lot easier for me um, many, many times. Usually what I do is I compare it to, uh, remember it came right after the championship. By the way, the Celtics haven't won the championship since they moved us off courtside. The last game we did courtside was, you know, game six it's the Sean of the Grant finals curse. in 2008. But it's the Sean Grant, right, it's the Section 20 curse. But I really compare it to, I was so dominant during that run. Remember when Maris hit all the home runs and they <laughs> raised the mound? Yep. You know, like in 1961, that's what I compare it to. Like, I was so good, I was so dominant <laughs> during that championship run that they had to, like, level the playing field and create a scenario where, well, let's see if he can call the game without being able to see it, and then we'll find out yeah, you if like, he's like, any good at it. You know, I, I, have a, I have a joking answer about it. Obviously, it's, it is pretty much the bane of my Celtics existence, and, you know, a lot of people throw up their hands, and this is the, rea- the reality of it is people pay a lot of money for those seats now, and it's just better financially for the organization. The problem is TD Garden is not equipped like most of the buildings around the NBA. The spot where, generally speaking, it goes now in the NBA is sort of, you're still center court, but you'd be in the back of the loge. In the garden where the suites are, that spot doesn't exist. There's no concourse there. There's no, there's no place for it. And so they've looked at all different options, including building, you know, building things, and just haven't come up with a economically feasible option so it's uh 
you know, it, it is it is the worst spot in the league. But there are some teams that are, you know, competing now. Uh, you know, San Antonio has a really bad spot, and it's it's the way of the world. Uh, you know, money is going to determine it. Has there ever been a time where, where you, like, just couldn't see the action and you looked out there and you were just kind of making something oh, yeah. up? <laughs> I, lo- I love that. Well, I, you know, I don't know if this is the, I don't know if this is the first time I've said this out loud or said it on a, in a public forum in any case, but I, generally speaking, I'm not looking at I, home games. I call off TV pretty yeah. much um, because I can't, I can't trust the – you know, you sit there, so you know you can't trust the angle – uh, the the play the sort of the defining play and we got to go back to I think one of the first years so we're talking 2009 and 2010 and I remember because it was whatever Raja Bell was in Charlotte there was a decisive play where Charlotte was down two in overtime and the ball comes out to him on the wing and he goes up at the end of overtime for a shot and from where I'm sitting because at that point I was still trying to call the game by seeing it and not you not calling it off TV. In the one moment he releases the shot, I do not know if he is on the line or behind the line. I have no idea if it's a three because I can't see his feet. And both referees, one referee is screened by the Celtics bench standing up, and the other referee is screened by the by the basket because we're behind the basket. Yeah. So the, there's three markers you're looking for in that situation. The feet or the two referees to see if it's a three that's in the air, and all three were blocked off. So as a shot was in the air, I had no idea if it was a, you know, a game winner or not. The great, the first ever game in that spot ever called by anyone was the night the banner went up, which was Cleveland and Joe Tate, the legendary longtime voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers. The ball came around to the obstructed view corner, and he a shot was made, and he said, you know, and the shot was made by a player to be named later. <laughs> and that was sort of the defining moment of. Uh, of the corner, but you know the uh, it's changed. You know around around the NBA a lot. There's a lot of really high locations, and it's driven a lot of the guys. You know Joe Tate and Hot Rod Hundley is dro- drove a lot of the older guys out of the league because they just couldn't you know couldn't see the action anymore. And it's it's on the one hand it's kind of sad, on the other hand this is the way you do it. My background was hockey and football and whatever, so I'm used to being up high. So a lot of these road buildings, it's not a big deal to me. I don't mind because I'm used to being up high, but not being able to see the court is. You know, it does make it. You know, I've got my got all those jokes about it that I've honed over a lot of years, but it is uh, less than ideal. I love the Raja Bell story. A- anytime we can get a Raja Bell reference <laughs> on this podcast, always always a good podcast. Uh, hey, here's how here's how here's how old I am. Here's how old I am. I called Boston University basketball when I was right out of school. I did some commercial games for BU basketball, and Raja Bell was a freshman on that team before he transferred to, uh, to to FIU. He was a uh he played at Boston University for a year. I did those games. I want to say it was nineteen ninety five maybe. My cousin played at BU for a couple of years Wolf before Wolf. he transferred to uh under Wolf. So uh, I don't know. I don't yeah, Dennis Wolf yeah. Uh, from UVA. Yep. Uh okay. So one thing I've noticed about you, and I've, I'm sure everyone notices, well after most guys are asleep, like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., you'll be tweeting out rare stats about the Celtics, like something about Isaiah Thomas's on-off numbers in the month of December, or like so, something else. I don't even know how you track that stuff down. Uh, first of all, do you sleep? And second part to this question, what is your process to prepare for games? 
Um, not as much as I uh, should is the, the first answer, and not as much as I used to. I used to say when I went in the league, the first you know ten, fifteen years, whatever I was in the league, I didn't go to sleep before three a.m. ever because there was no there was no reason to. I mean, that was sort of my hours was I'd go to bed at three or four in the morning and you'd get up at ten or eleven. I've always found there's great there's a great um, society treats people differently. If you go to bed at ten at night and get up at six in the morning, you're a go getter and a morning person and you have this great start to the day. If you go to bed at four in the morning and sleep till eleven, you've had less sleep than the person that got up at six, but you like your sleep late and you're lazy and you're whatever, so it's never really fair like late night people. But I get home at night, yeah, home game, uh, you know, I'm home by ten thirty or eleven o'clock, but a road game you get home at that's when you get home. It's, it's, I, I do a game in Charlotte, a regular work night for me. I'm doing a game in Charlotte. I'm getting home at one thirty or 2 in the morning. And when you fly home after a game and you walk in the door, you don't just, like, crawl into bed and go to sleep. You're still sort of – that's why, by the way, and you can push this on your list for later, too. The sleep doctors, I, I think that the Celtics specifically have not – I think they followed the sleep doctor to the letter of the law. I think there's a flaw in the logic of the sleep doctor and how he comes up with things about when to stay the night and when to fly and whatever. But it's a late-night existence. Now, just about five years ago, I became a dad, and that changed everything dramatically because my son did not care that I got home at 3 in the morning at 6.30 when he wanted to get up and play. Like, he didn't, he was not interested in where the Celtics were the night before. So that sort of, that did mess things up a little bit. But the, the post-game stuff is, a lot of it is stuff that I've tracked myself over the years some of which, not all of it, but some of which is obsolete now because we live in the basketball reference, true internet age where every, you know, a lot of what I have, which will make me unique, like on the air and doing that stuff, is institutional memory. Like I will, I remember something, so I know where to go to look for it. And it's not going to be who scored 35 points, score the most points against Charlotte, because I'll remember, hey, Wally Zerbiak had a really big game against Charlotte in November of 2006. Because the problem when you don't drink or do drugs or do anything else to damage the brain cells is you can't forget all this useless information that just piles up year after year after year in your brain. Uh, but I keep a file after every game, and this is a thousand, I don't know how many Celtic games now after, where are we now, 15, 15 years Celtics. After every game, I take about 20 minutes or so and I just put numbers into a, you know, sort of like a superlative thing. And after 15 years, it, it's quite a big file of so now I can quickly look over 15 years, like the top 10 rebound margin games. Celtics had one like early in the second year. Brad Stevens living against Toronto, where they out rebounded them by 30 or something. And I can find that information very quickly because I've been keeping all these files. And you can do a lot of it with basketball reference too. But I love that you knew that. You know, off the top knowing of where to that look. Was awesome. Well, you know what? It's a sad. Like I do. Remember, well, the Zerbiak one. I'll tell you why I remember the Wally game. Wally, <laughs> because it was a fun story. It was very early in the 06 07 season. I remember having to do these interviews before the season because I had a bad feeling about that year going in. But you could cover yourself at the start of the year by saying, well, you know, if, if Paul Pierce and Wally Zerbiak and Theo Ratliff, ha, are healthy, you know, this team could win 35, 38 games. And, you know, there was no way in hell that was ever going to happen that those guys were going to stay healthy. The first two obviously went down, and as soon as Paul went down, the whole thing went, you know, as south as it could go. But early in that season, Bob Cousy had been very critical of Wally. And there was that game against Charlotte, 
very early in the year, and if you're online right now listening to the podcast, you can just quickly like look it up. It's like November of 2006, and Wally had like 35 in the game. And this is one of the last years we're courtside. It's funny how it all ties together. And for for the first seven or eight years I was here, I sat next to Mike and Tommy. They sat, you know, in one place, and Max and I were right next to each other. So Koozie was doing the game. <laughs> and Wally lights up Charlotte, scores 35 points, and then I'll tell you an even better story about Wally and Charlotte and him making Matt Carroll a very rich man in a second later that year. But Wally goes for 35, and he comes over to the table. He's our post-game guest. And as he put the headphones on, Koozie's right there. And Wally goes, that was for you, Koozie. <laughs> you know, because he had been critical. And in a lovely moment of complete unawareness, Coos goes, geez, thanks, Wally. <laughs> you know, like having no idea that it was like derisive and that's, you know, whatever. That's a great story, man. Wally yeah. Serbiak, Raja Bell. I'm so excited for whoever your next reference is. Well, you want the Matt Carroll one? Yes, yes, absolutely. True story. Now, I love listen, Wally. Wally is not only a friend of mine. And we both, you know, work on the CBS umbrella, and I absolutely love him to death. And we were together. I was with Wally when he was a rookie. You know, his first two years, you know, in Minnesota, I was there. And we bonded over, you know, pro wrestling and back, you know, 15 years ago when he first came in the league. But obviously by the end, and I always thought he was a better defender than he got credit for and a better athlete than he got credit for early. But by the end, obviously, he was banged up and he could barely. And we went to Charlotte. I want to say it was later that year. So many things. See, here's the thing about these Celtics-Charlotte-Bobcat games. See, nobody watched them, nobody remembers them, but all this fun stuff happened. And if you remember, the Celtics just had bad luck. Celtics lost a lot of games in Charlotte early in those, you know, Bobcat years. Matt Carroll, Matt Carroll, and I was able to tell the story to Matt Carroll, who now does radio for Charlotte last year, and he remembered the exact game. Basically, Wally was guarding Matt Carroll, and by guarding, I mean, you know, not at all guarding him. Uh... <laughs> in this segment of the game. And Matt Carroll hits like three or four shots in a row. It was unbelievable. You'd have to look this game up, too, because Matt Carroll had a big game. And, you know, Doc had to call a timeout. Everybody goes back to the, everybody goes back to the bench, and Doc gives his big, you know, Doc never singles anybody out, but he gives his big, you know, his little timeout speak. And as everybody's going back out on the floor, Wally claps his hands together really loud and goes, come on, guys, we got to D up, which, you know, is just also just an adorable Wally story, but Matt Carroll remembers that game, and I always, you know, Max and I talk about that. Is that like Matt Carroll got like a twenty million dollar contract after that? And thanks I always, to Wally, I always think thanks, of that night. All as, thanks as to Wally Serbia. As the, as the night, you know, as the night he got it. Wally was an underrated. I don't think he would. People appreciated. There's a lot. He had hype coming in, and he didn't get along with KG obviously yeah. um, at the at the start, and there were a lot of reasons for that. And the KG psyche is a whole another ten part. <laughs> episode in and of itself but you know Wally was a and I remember saying to him like you know you got another year in you because he could still shoot he could still score whatever but he just he had physically he had, he had like an, an NFL body like he just got beat up so badly he just his knee he had nothing left in his knees but yeah, he had so, you know he had a, a career it just goes man I, I am very good evidence yeah. of that uh, <laughs> I, I read somewhere yeah. that you you actually listen to hip hop music before a game because you feel like it helps you with your play-by-play? Do you still do that? I, you know, it's funny. I, I haven't done that as much, you know, in my older years, but I do remember when I switched to radio and had to speak faster. This is 2001, so, you know, like Eminem was really big at that time. And I do remember 
you know, I, I like it anyway. I like the genre, and I like yeah. the music, and I like it, you know, I'm, I'm just like anybody else in the shower or when you work it out, you, you're, you're doing it. But I found that it helped, that it was a good, particularly, you know, an Eminem style, where there were a lot of words per, you know, words per minute was very high, and elocution became a lot more important than being able to speak quickly. People think, because, you know, I've done hockey for years and years, and people think that basketball is somehow, basketball is just, there's just as many things going on. You know, so the more you can communicate clearly, the better picture you're going to paint. You know, when you're doing when you're what doing radio. So I found that did you know it, it sort of a, uh, I think we're probably going 2002. We're in an Eminem show. Uh, the the duet with uh, the duet with Dre. I really like Forgot on that. Um, say what you say. Say what you say. Yeah, no, no, not forgot about Dre. That's the old one. That's like '99. Uh, say what you say. Check it, check it out. I always like that one. There it wasn't go. like a big. It didn't get a lot of radio play. Yeah, didn't get a ton of radio play, but it was. Uh, that was always one of my and, favorites. And did you did you sing? But it was. It helped us be able to speak it to you know, quickly. Or did you just listen to? It? Well, I no, I used to do it. I used to do it down the line until we moved back to EEI and I wasn't like as trustful of the producers because that could easily like anything could end up on the air or like at the big show the next day. <laughs> like we were at the old radio station like when I first got back and I was kind of more in charge of everything. But yeah, I did. Once I realized anything could go on the air and Max got the ball, then you realize you're in a whole other, in a whole different world. So, so you don't want to give us an Eminem verse right now? I don't see that happening, Mr. King. <laughs> I really don't. Um, Maybe next time. Well, you'll, you'll, I really, here. I really, really, and even so, like I'm not now. It's just no. It's no longer. It's like you know. I'm not going to wear a. You're not going to see me wearing jerseys or anything anymore. You get to a certain age, you kind of you know you lose there's a lot of things you can't do anymore. It's like you know, as, as Charles Barkley, my friend Charles Barkley will tell you, you can't if you can't wear it to a PTA meeting. You know, you shouldn't be shouldn't be wearing it anymore. So you kind of <laughs> just have to. Certain outfits, women get to a certain age, certain outfits you probably shouldn't be wearing anymore. Guys get to a certain age, there's no more, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll rapping we'll out get, loud. We'll get you to do That's the Eminem terror. song when you come back. You, as an apology for having you on this late in the game, we're going to bring you back as our first return guest. First return guest. How, how does wow. that sound? I see, I see how it is. Now you're... <sighs> I, just, I, I, I just somehow, it just seemed like a colossal disrespect to the magnitude that is me. That you would wait this long. It's just like I'm, you know, what's the, the line from uh, from Almost Famous from the bus pulls away? It's like, all right, who am I? I'm just the lead singer. You know, the bus is pulling away. But whatever. Right. Uh, one great example of the magnitude that is you. Your 2008 championship call, which was an absolute treasure. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone hasn't heard it. I could read it. I don't. You you might be able to recite it. I don't. I don't know. Could you still recite that to this day? Only if I can. It's only because it runs at the end of the op- like I've heard it a thousand times because yeah. it's the last thing that plays in the open to the broadcast. So it's run over and over again. I mean, there is you know, there's a st- like most things. There's a story to it um, in that like different parts. The last thing you want to do is like plan it. Ahead of time, that's a real pet peeve of mine. So, so that was tell the planned. story is going on. Had the Celtics won? Well, here's the part of it that was. I'll put it this way: had the had it happened, I 
very little surprises you. You sort of have, you know, in, the, in sports, almost anything that happens, you have to sort of be prepared for anything. To this day, I remain incredulous that the Celtics did not win Game 5 in Los Angeles. I've never been so sure of anything in my life that the Celtics were going to win that night in L.A. in Game 5. And I always tell people, like, everything, would, the call would have been completely different because it probably would have been a closer game. There might have been an actual blood. That's the thing. You can't play. Who knows? Maybe it was a game-winning three at the buzzer. So you can't, yeah. you can't just go into a – if you plan a call, you're just, it's not going to seem natural when you go into it. Um, and, you know, game five would have been different. Game five to me, because to me there was this perfect – it was this – the poetry of that night being Father's Day. I, I had written a very long – back in the days when I was doing the big, long monologues and the opens that everybody always, whatever, reacted to – it was a big thing about Father's Day, which was very, you know, emotional to me for a lot of reasons. I brought, you know, my father died when I was 14. The last basketball game we watched together was the night Max carried the Celtics on his back in Game 7 in 84. My father died, you know, a couple of months after that. Yeah, I was a kid. I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. And it was one of those things. I had one of his ties with me because I was so sure I was going to change into it in the fourth quarter just so I could have something, you know, of him on Father's Day. And remember, I, you know, I'd written this whole thing about Father's Day and how, as you remember, that season began after game one. Celtics beat Washington opening night to go to Toronto for game two on Sunday. And that morning, I remembered seeing Doc in the hotel. We kind of passed each other in the hallway and, you know, Doc and I, our relationship, obviously, for anyone that's ever listened to Celtics Radio during that nine years is very familiar with the sort of, you know, beat each other up, you know, relationship that Doc and I had. Obviously, we were very close. And it was just one of those things, you know, when you see somebody all the time, you always have that same reaction when you pass in the halls and whatever. And something was weird that day. And it didn't occur to me. I think I was going to work out or something. And, I pa- and, it, and then later that day, I find out his father had died. That was, you know, his father died. He carried that with him all year. If you remember, it wasn't until the finals, until somebody, I think it was actually Woj, that asked him about it at a press conference, and he finally kind of broke down because he had the season was going on, so you don't really have time to stop and to grieve and to mourn. And here it was on Father's Day, okay, and the Celtics were up three games to one. Everybody knows the home team doesn't win game five because you don't want to fly 3,000 miles to take a horrific beating, which is, of course, what, you know, we found out why you lose game five in game six. But there was a line, I think, within that thing that in a year that, you know, that year, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Leon Poe, somebody else, maybe James Posey, four men, four men who largely grew up without one became one. And in the year that Doc Rivers lost his, the Celtics were about to become champions on Father's Day. It was like the perfect ending. And so to this day, I can't believe they didn't win that game, especially the way it went. It just seemed like they were coming back again like they had in game four. Everything was kind of played out, and that's a very long answer, which I'm subject to. It will happen, especially in a podcast form, of the call, which would have been much different had they won in game five. But in game six, there was an element I knew what to some degree what I was going to say, and the reason I did was because the Celtics were up by 25 at halftime. Yeah. There was no suspense whatsoever, and I remember being uh, in the media, you know, halftime, like just going to sit by myself because I'm like, all right, now this is really here. There will be no spontaneity. It's going to be an hour and a half of build up for this moment. <clears throat> but the call, which is, if you have it in front of you or not, it was the thing about uh, the 
the uh, mission accomplished. Yeah, the mission came from mission where that came from. The mission statement, mission accomplished, came from two things. Number one, I wanted to do something for the people in the office <clears throat> because they nobody ever thinks about them or mentions them. And Banner Seventeen was what the organization that was the you know the 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 name of the consortium that bought the team. They called it Banner Seventeen. That was the it was the mission state. The mission statement was the company's mission statement to bring Banner Seventeen. So that's where that came in. But the mission statement, mission accomplished. Now you remember one other thing that happened in the news that week. And this is where that came from. And it was actually the morning of Game 5 when I first rolled it around in my head because Game 4, the night after Game 4, Tim Russert died. And Tim Russert, one of the last things he said, he, was talk, he talked to Mike Barnacle. Is it Mike Barnacle? I think it was Mike Barnacle. And one of the last, last conversations they ever had was about the Celtics' comeback the night before. Like, wasn't that a hell of a game? And that morning, the morning of Game 5, Meet the Press was a special edition of, like, the best of Tim Russert, like, honoring Tim Russert for all his work. And within the confines of it, you had no idea this podcast was going this deep, did you? Now you're saying, how did I not do this sooner? How is it possible I waited this long? I have been writing every day about Isaiah Thomas doing different charity things because there's nothing else going on (laughs) in September in the NBA, and I could have been having this kind of gold (laughs) the whole time. One of the defining one of the defining Tim Russert interviews was when he pushed Rumsfeld on because ever Rumsfeld and Bush had said mission accomplished in Iraq, and one of the defining moments in Tim Russert was how he kept pushing him on Rumsfeld on how can you say mission accomplished, mission accomplished, and that's why that was in my head was from the Tim Russert thing which had happened that week. So all of a sudden, mission statement, mission accomplished, had been in my head. And the, the dynasty, the regaining the throne thing, I had written that in a column for Celtics.com on opening night. It was the, and I just brought it back to end the season the way I had began it, because it was the Patriots were 16-0, and and it had, all the, it had won the Super 3 Super Bowls already. The Red Sox had just days earlier won their second World Series, which had been three years ago unthinkable if they would ever win one. Now... The last piece of business is for the game's original monarchy or whatever to regain the throne. So that's where that came from. Was so, on so there opening were a night. Lot of layers when you call. have an hour. A lot of layers to that call. There were layers to it, but when you have an hour to, and then of course the other half of the story was the the part that everyone remembers was when as it was going on, and the final seconds are ticking down. The legendary Max moment. Of course, I heard it in the headset when he said, <laughs> "I got the ball." <laughs> But we hear a lot of things in our headsets when we're calling games. You hear a lot of things. It doesn't mean they're on the air. People so can, so no in that moment, I knew what had happened. Yeah. I, I assumed it was. I hoped like hell that it wasn't. So <laughs> I just kept going in the hopes that it wasn't on the air. But I did know in the moment, if it was on the air, that that's, what, that's the only thing anyone would. That I knew Max was, Max was going to be defined by that. You know, moment Max had had. It's really funny because as a player, Max was better. The bigger the moment got, Max was better. His greatest moments came in some of the biggest games. It's one of the things about him and that he was never. It was a Tuesday night game in Richfield, Ohio. He just wasn't that. You know, he just wasn't that into it. But Game Seven of the NBA Finals, he's one. You know, he had that Rondo sort of thing where he just got better when the games were bigger. But there was a prelude to that. Here's another good story for you. Uh, this, this two weeks earlier, happened months ago, man. This should have been the very first podcast. Uh, 
you're, yeah, well, this is, now you're going to have to live with it. You're going to have to live with this choice. You're going to have this golden episode, and you're going to be tweeting about this golden episode, but you're going to be like, what was I thinking? <clears throat> Not doing this earlier. Two weeks earlier, game six in Detroit. Yeah. Max has... Max has the moment. That's one of the great games of all time. I remember writing my open, talking about you have to guess sometimes as to what you think is going to happen. Like, just as I was sure the Celtics would win game five, in my open that night, I had to decide, because remember, the first two series had gone seven. It looked like this was going seven also. And my gut just said the Celtics were going to win game six. So I went with the open that I had planned, which was another, you know, Blah, 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 Grandy backstory, blathering on in his monologue about, you know, Ray and Kevin and all the things they'd done in their career, but they had never gone to the NBA Finals, each of the three. And now here it was. I just felt like it was going to happen. Now, the defining play there, that you may remember, in the fourth quarter, there was a crazy sequence of missed shots by the Pistons, and Paul ended up getting this long rebound. It was after, you know, it was during the comeback, and Rip Hamilton comes running up from behind. It was a long, I remember being a long play-by-play sequence without a whistle because there were a ton of missed shots and rebounds, and Paul finally grabs a hold of the ball, and it's a big play for the Celtics. And there comes Rip Hamilton running up from behind, and Max, who just completely became so invested in this all of a sudden, screams, uh, Paul, watch out! <laughs> you know, in the, middle of the, in the middle of the play. Like, what is going, you know... What, what is happening here? He had become so emotionally invested. He had just, and this was sort of the prelude to I Got the Ball of him kind of losing it in these <clears throat> very emotional moments. And the, the real payoff to that story was we're on the plane at getting ready to fly back after game six and the, the silver balls up in the front of the plane and the Celtics are going to the NBA Finals. And actually just sitting there shaking his head at what he did because he knew it was going to be <clears throat> replayed quite a bit. And I said, uh, you know, what's the big deal? We made, you know, we had some laughs about it. It wasn't that big a deal. And he just shook his head. He said, man, I became the black guy at the movie theater. <laughs> said, well, that was, you know. Okay. So, so you and your father. Comedic, comedic moment in private. Yeah. So, so you and your father, the last game you watched together was Cedric Maxwell's put, put, I'm going to put you guys on my back that game. And the, and the reason, yeah, I, I and I wrote about it because. Yeah. Again, it was a, a time that I was very invested, obviously, in the, and I joke about, you know, doing those games well, but it was, I do remember that as sort of, that's not the prime of your, I remember that just sort of taking over my life. It was just a point in my life when <laughs> the Celtics thing was what was going on, because I knew it was important. I really felt early in the year, the game the Celtics lost to Detroit in December that game, that night, was actually the night I really, from that point on, I was like, this is going to happen. They're going to win. Because I was one of the people going into the year that thought, oh, they'll probably be better in the second year in 09 when Rondo and Perkins are on. By the middle of December, I was like, no, this is, this is happening. The Celtics are going to win. And, you know, you're sort of like just kind of mentally prepared for that. But in these monologues, we got into the finals, and now I've already said what the game 5-1 was. And the game 6-1 was about coming home, and it was this really long trip. The Celtics were very delayed getting back from L.A. Didn't get back till about midnight on Monday, the night, you know, like after game 5, the night right before game 6. Because <clears throat> KG kind of went to the, he went to go shoot, this sort of legendary thing that he went to go shoot. But the game 2 monologue, the reason about my father that it came up, because I, I spoke about it and talked about it, was because Jim McKay died in between game 1 and game 2. 
And I remember writing my monologue about Jim McKay and how that if he had been here that, you know, if he had been the one telling stories, he would have known something like my last game, the last game my dad and I saw together was Cedric Maxwell, who was sitting next to me tonight as we call the finals. And, you know, Leon Poe and his, that was always my favorite, one of my all-time favorite stories, people ask me, just covering the Celtics. Moments, forgotten moments in Celtics history the last 15 years that were very significant to me. Leon, and this is just an example of how I think the stories are the most compelling thing. Leon Poe walking on the floor at Oracle Arena in Golden State his rookie year. Ten feet from the outside of that building where he and his mother had sold things at the flea market that they hold there every week to make ends meet. Years earlier as a kid, like fighting off homelessness, he and his mom. And now here he is playing his first NBA game in that building. <clears throat> I thought it was a great story. And that just that kind of thing came up that night about just storytelling and things like that. But, yeah, that was 1984 was when uh, my dad died, and that was the last game. I remember being, the cable was out during the day, and I remember my dad being furious, like calling the cable company, like, you better get this thing fixed because the game's on tonight. Yeah, you got, you got and he wasn't that. He wasn't like this monstrous sports fan. But Celtics Lakers game seven in '84 was cable better be working. Did you ever tell Cedric? About, I assume you told Cedric about that story. Yeah, he knows. He knows that one. Uh, <clears throat> I think Max is not as not quite as sentimental. We've spoken. We did a piece when Max's number was retired. We did like a long radio documentary type thing on his. You know, talking about his, like, his day that day and the things he did and what he remembers, like, how vivid that day is. Because you remember, I, you know, you remember specific things. I know, people ask me, well, like, what was your best game? What's your, I don't know if it was, you know, game seven against Cleveland to me is, like, that's certainly my defining Celtics game. And that was, you know, the bird dominate for the next. And I, you just remember that 08 run. I just remember as it was happening, as these days were going on, thinking, I'm going to be remember, I'll remember these days forever. Ten years from now, I'll be up in the middle of the night doing a podcast with some dude who's probably in high school now, <laughs> and I'll be talking about where I was on the day of Game 6. Those games in Detroit, I just remember there being, so, the, like those Eastern Conference final games started like 8.45, and the bus, you wouldn't take the bus to the arena until it was so late, like the days were so long. You weren't leaving the hotel till like 6.30 or 6.45 at night. And, you know, just things that are just very vivid about the trip. Walking to the bus in L.A., you know, all the fans are lined up, like, booing the hell out. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, the fans are just screaming. You're the, now you're the play-by-play guy, and the fans are booing you and screaming at you. I'm like, how cool is this? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, after game four, Celtics are up 3-1, and we're back at the same hotel. We're literally in the room. At the uh, Beverly Wilshire, the where uh, Richard Gere and Julia Roberts are on the piano, and they end up playing more than Mozart on the piano, so to speak. And we're in that room, and we're like all playing ping pong with Ray Allen. It's like you know, you're going to remember this stuff, you know, years and years later. And I, I think what I remember most about '08 and doing those games was sort of because I thought the Celtics would win that year, and I remember, and and there was the Kevin Garnett thing from the previous summer where. If you remember, people were not in favor of the Kevin Garnett deal. That's yeah, a forgotten part of history. Yes. That I will never, I, I will never ever let that be forgotten. <laughs> that everyone was against. You know, eighty percent of the people were. Should the Celtics trade Al Jefferson for Kevin Garnett? Eighty percent said no. And so for me, 
and announcers are supposed to be impartial and have no emotion. That's nonsense because you're not human if you don't. There was an element to me in that year of the Jordan turning his palms up in 92 <laughs> when he hit the shots against Portland. There was an, there was an I told you so I element to that year for me because... I, right, because I had been saying, you know, I had been Kevin Garnett, and people were like, oh, you were just with him in Minnesota. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. I'm telling you, this is not This is a guy who's already in the Hall of Fame. And because Boston had been, Celtics hadn't really been in that hardcore NBA, TNT, Thursday night, Sunday ABC culture for the years before that. And I don't think people just appreciated They knew, hey, he's a good player, but they didn't understand that this is one of the players of his era. And had he was just going to, you know, that he was a changing force on the court and off the court. So yeah, there was an element. There were nights, and the Celtics are going twenty nine and three. That I remember thinking, yeah, I told you so. <laughs> I, shoulder shrug. I, I, I can point remember. Out, yeah. I, so I was in college when the Celtics traded for Garnett, and I was a huge Celtics fan. I can remember reading the story you wrote for Celtics dot com, and <laughs> not that that changed anything for me because I knew. KG was just a ridiculously great player on both ends of the court. But I, I can remember that getting me super hyped for the whole experience. Uh, d- did you know everything he would do for the Celtics culture? Uh, I, I, I really felt a lot of it. I felt he was that guy. And it's funny because Max and I used to argue. Max was on that side of the air. He was on the side of, you know, obviously Mike and Tommy were, you know, again, the forgotten part of history, and I say it with love, you know, for a guy that I, I just genuinely love and has been a father figure or whatever, but Tommy Heinsohn did say he quit. I'll quit if the Celtics trade Al Jefferson. Okay? I mean, that's how <laughs> locked into, and I think some of that was, it was our job. We, I think fans genuinely loved that group. Al, Delonte, oh, yeah. you know, Tony, I think they really did. Years yeah, later, they really there's, truly did. There's so it's hard. Absolutely, when Delonte, right? When Delonte came back, when he came back, when he was introduced, he got a huge pop. When he came back from the crowd, like when he had that second tour <clears throat> with the Celtics, but I think that people were just, and I think part of it was like we all did such a good job hyping those guys up, too, as being the next big thing, and there had been so little to get excited about that breaking that up was like. We had people convinced that Al Jefferson was, oh, we can't. For Kevin Garnett, Kevin Garnett's done it. He's never won anything. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. This is not, like, on his best day. Like, Kevin Garnett was a better offensive player than Al Jefferson. Yeah. Forget the fact that the defensive gap between them was, like, you know, something you'd measure in, in space, light years, <laughs> or some terminology like that. But <clears throat> anyway, yeah, I did know, and I knew that his dream – they always said that Billy Joel's dream was to play backup in somebody else's band. That he just wanted to be this brilliant piano player and singer, but not be that lead guy. And this was Chan. Kevin was like that too. He was the, but he didn't want to be the front man. And so it was like the perfect, you know, it was just a dream scenario. And there's stories that I, you know, there's like one day when I write the book of all the off the, you know, <clears throat> off the record stuff that happened that you know I can't really talk about. But <laughs> I'll just say this: on the bus. On the plane, off the you know, away from things. Paul's leadership style. Paul was a leader in that he kept himself in unbelievable shape. He was a leader by example. But Paul wouldn't break up a fight, you know, between two teammates. Paul wouldn't if something happened on the plane that should have happened. We had sponsors or something like that, kids or whatever on the plane. 
Paul wasn't like Kevin would like apologize. He would you know settle the issue among the team and then make a point to apologize to the outsiders or the people that were just natural, instinctive, inherent human leadership that is not taught that just existed. And he he was you know he was all of those things that year. And you plus you had him at the height of his physical power, and he obviously. Needless to say, he was the MVP of the league that year. By every definition of what an MVP should be, it was ridiculous <clears throat> that he was third. What killed him was the, the games he was hurt. Paul had a huge game against San Antonio on national TV when KG was out, and to this day, I'm convinced that was one of the, that really hurt KG in the MVP <clears throat> balloting, MVP voting. But you know, I I was around him when he was 20. I was in Minnesota. He was 22 when I was in Minnesota, and he was already, you know, he was already the man. You could already see what he was going to, you know, yeah, okay. he was going to be. But when I got there, he was three, three or four years in. You, you've probably been asked this a million times, but but KG stories are the greatest stories. What is the best KG story you can tell? I assume there's probably a lot that you cannot tell. <laughs> Yeah, most of the yeah, most of them you can't, and they're you can't either for language or for <laughs> you know them being behind behind closed doors. I you know I have a lot of like individual moments. Um, actually, well, you know what? I will tell you one that I've never ever told before. This is to be go. another exclusive for exclusive you on this here. litany of exclusives on the greatest podcast. You know what's going to be depressing for you when you wake up tomorrow? You're going to realize this is the best one you're ever going to do. Yeah, Where peaked. are you going to go from here? We peaked. Think about that. It's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> All right, so five years ago, uh, actually before that, I told you I had my son five years ago, and his mother, who I was dating at the time, she took her nephew to a game. And, again, this isn't a true KG story, but it's a little bit about his personality and, like, the real person, because he was two different people, again, publicly and privately. So there's that little waiting area, you know, where they kind of pen people off, where you almost get to, like, see the players. It's not really an autograph area, but after the game, if you're a VIP, you get to kind of hang out and watch them leave, you know, in the back of the garden there. So the Celtics are leaving. We're on the road. I'm already in the car on the way to Hanscom because we have to race to the airport because, believe me when I tell you, they're not waiting for us. (laughs) Uh, So I'm already in the car, and I get a text from my son's mother, and she's with, it's five, six years ago, and she's with her nephew, and the text says, I'm staying with him after we're going to try to get Kevin Garnett's autograph. And in my head, I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be bad, because I know what the next text is going to be. I, exactly. I know what the next text is going to be in 15 minutes. I know what's coming, and I can't do anything about it. I'm, already, I'm on the road. I'm, I'm going to the airport. So I'm like, I know what is about to happen, and the consequences of this person that I'm dating now is going to, I know what's going to happen. And here he comes, 15 minutes later. That son of a, he didn't even look up. He walked by all the kids and whatever. And I'm like, oh, God, because I know <laughs> now in this relationship that I'm in six, seven years ago, Kevin Garnett's name is now Mud, you know, and it's it's a disaster. He so flash forward, uh, my son is, and, you know, it's the way he is, public. I've seen it. I've seen his behavior in public, and he just made a, you know, he made a decision to how he was going to be. Years later, we're going to a game in, in New Jersey, and he leaves the hotel, and he signed an autograph for two kids, leaving the hotel. And he gets on the bus, and I literally stopped him. I said, what the hell was that? I said, I said, who are you? What did you do with Kevin Garnett? And he just like, you know, whatever. But 
so flash forward a couple of years later, my son was born. The first ever time, I, you know, we had that hellacious lockout schedule, so <clears throat> it was very hard to see my son. And she brings him to Atlanta because we're flying in from Denver on that crazy road trip when the Celtics played four straight games in four different time zones or whatever. And so we get there, we go down, we go to uh, the bags come, and I'm down there with my son. I've got my six, how old is it? Five month old son in my hands. We're going down to get the bags. Kevin always went down to get his own bag because he didn't like other people bringing his bag up for him. So we go down there, and all of a sudden there's KG, and with I'm holding my son, and his mother is standing right there. And of course, now you get the real Kevin Garnett. And he comes over, and he's, oh, you guys are so blessed. And he's talking about the kid and just going, oh, no, i got to be careful because my wife wants to have another one. And i got, I just, you know, I got to be, you know, all this stuff. And he's just going on and on and on. And I'm, to myself, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to contain my amusement at this moment because now she's going to have to take it all back, all the stuff she's been spewing. This is like two years later. So for two years, you know. So we're walking down the street. And, you know, he introduced himself, hi, I'm Kevin, whatever, because she's not that big a, you know, she's not really a sports fan. Anyway, here's the funny, so we're walking away, and all of a sudden she's like, wait a minute, was that Kevin Garnett? And, of course, <laughs> and I'm like, she didn't even, right. So, and she's like, damn it, I wanted to hate him, you know. So, finally, it all, <clears throat> it all comes around, and it all comes around in circles. But I, I, I just think definition of he's circle. a different very definition of full circle and anything's possible. Um, which of course, you know, again, forgotten part of history. He flubbed the line. The line was nothing. It, that literally changed the whole campaign. The campaign for five years before that had been nothing is impossible. <laughs> and he forgot the line. He screwed it up. In the heat of the moment, he forgot the line and said the wrong line. And that's become the one that's remembered. It's a more, you know, lonely Island. Andy Samberg put it in one of the songs. It's immortalized now as anything's possible. And that was actually the wrong line. He forgot the line. Andy Samberg reference too. We, we we got it all on this podcast. This this is a golden podcast. I, I don't I, I I don't go out of my way to be. Listen, I like things that I'm you know I'm no longer young. I'm 44 years old, so I'm no longer. But I still I'm. I like things that young people like. I'm just not going to be like, hey, Lonely Island, uh, you know, Facebook, <laughs> MySpace, you know, Snapchat, you know, like just to throw out catchphrases. Trying to seem like a yeah, I know that Sean was really deliberately. Said, yeah, <laughs> he likes Eminem. Right, exactly. You don't. It's like I get it. I get it. I'm gonna like what I like, and I, to me, it's like things are. Everything's about demographics. If you're young, you should like this. If you're white, you should like this. When I was a kid, when I was very young, Robert Klein, who was like the first comedian that like influenced me when I was very very young. He had this great thing about, and this was like the very early days of split marketing like this in the late 70s. He would do, have you ever noticed there's two Budweiser commercials? There's like, there's the the white country, you know, this Bud's for you. And then there's like the very soulful black Budweiser commercial. And he goes, the white guy, that offends me because I like the black song better. <laughs> and it was all, you know, it, it was, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, I'm going to like what I like, but I'm not going to pretend to be, you know, we're just a youth obsessed, particularly in my industry. It's, you know, I was... You know, you've read the bio. I was always the youngest this and the youngest that and the youngest everything. And then one day when you're not paying attention, that's all going to all gonna turn around on you. When I went back to CBS a couple of years ago and I started doing TV games again, when I, you know, my first run on TV when I was at ABC and I was doing all these things, I was youngest this, youngest that. You just said you started with something I didn't even know about being one of the youngest ever, <laughs> you 
you know, in the NBA. I might have made that. So, up. I might have made And that when up. I was, you could have. I had no idea. And it doesn't. <laughs> but that used to be my. That was like the calling card. It was always youngest this, youngest that. And when I was, after I left college, even when I was in college, it wasn't long after the the natural. You know, people were still talking about the natural. Like when I was in high school and college, and I started doing games, and I was doing all this stuff so young. And people started calling me Roy Hobbs and Hobbs because I had this, I had the jersey, I had like the natural <clears throat> jersey, and I was the young guy doing all this stuff. Well, that was years and years ago. A couple of years ago, I go back to CBS, and I'm 40 years old, and I walk into the truck, and all of a sudden, you know, when I was doing games at ABC, like everybody in the truck was in their 50s, and everybody seemed ancient, and I was like this kid. Now I go back into the TV truck, and the producers look like they're in high school to me. And all of a sudden, I had this horrible moment that they called a breakthrough in therapy when I realized, now, I'm old Roy Hobbs. I'm the old, like, with a bullet in my chest, and I'm like, you know, son, you don't start playing at your age, you retire. It was like this, you know, that's the definition of full circle, is when you realize now you're the old Roy Hobbs and not the, not the young one. You've got some great stories, though, now that, now that you're a geezer. <laughs> that's the trade-off, I guess. All right, man. I've got like I've got like ten other questions for you, but I don't want to keep you too much longer. We're I've just been talking you. for an hour because I, I, I we don't. Here's the thing: we don't know anything about Jalen Brown. So what do you want to say? Exactly. <laughs> like, I, we don't know what's going to happen. We, I'm a little. I'm concerned. Every time I see people start going 52 wins, 54 wins, I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> so, like the kids say, pump the brakes, so, which I, is an expression I hate. Someone asked me for an NBA comparison for Jalen Brown, and I'm like, I'm like trying to think about it, and the gap between like the best case and the worst case is just so big. I had no clue. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, man, thank yeah. you very much for coming on. I'll save uh, you the, know, rest there, of the there, questions there, for we, part two because hey. you are going to be the first return guest. That's sure. a promise. And and you know maybe part two when we actually know something. It's like when Terry Rozier got drafted, and I'm like. I saw him play at Louisville. I did a Louisville game, and I watched a lot of Louisville tape getting ready for my Louisville game, and I'm like, I like Terry Rozier. I kind of like this player. And God forbid you say that the night he was drafted, because obviously it was a universally panned pick. And so I'm sitting on, believe me when I tell you, I'm sitting on a bunch of tweets from that night that are just like killing me. And how can you say that Terry Rozier is going to be a good player? I'm like, all right, because we don't know what we don't know yet. We don't know anything about Jalen Brown. We don't know about R.J. Hunter yet. We don't know anything. And that's the, that's the fun. That's the excitement of it. We know nothing about nothing except that Sean Grandy's one of the best yeah. to do it. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, Sean. We will definitely have you on soon again. Uh, enjoy. You're, you're doing a Bellator thing, right? You're, I'm in uh, Austin, Texas right now, which is uh, – I'm just full of barbecue right now, which is why I'm all excited because this is where you there come you for. Uh, Avery Bradley loves. Yeah, we can do a whole other part today awesome. about my, my. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, hook them horns. Awesome. It's uh, yeah, another day we can we can talk about jumping off a professional cliff because you'll be there one day. You'll have to. Should I do something I've never imagined myself doing ever before, and then <laughs> all of a sudden dudes are punching themselves in the face and you're getting blood on your laptop. Yeah, that's, you know, that, that's when you know. It's said. You've really gone in a different direction. But thank you very much, Sean, and uh, really appreciate it. We will talk to you soon, man. Hey, anytime. Listen, I appreciate what you guys do. The business is changing, and you guys have to evolve with it, and it's so much harder in so many ways to <clears throat> to break in and to make impact. And, you know, I appreciate what, 
what all of you guys do. You work really hard, and I do this whole bit about you know being the old guy and being the star and whatever. But uh, I I've embraced new media from the beginning, and I appreciate how hard all you guys work. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Always a thrill to talk to Sean, who just has so many stories, so many memories, so such a wealth of information about the Celtics. Celtics fans are so spoiled. I don't know if, if they realize how spoiled they are to have Mike Gorman on TV and Sean Grandy on radio. There's those two, absolutely two of the best in the business and both covering the same team. Both doing play-by-play for the same team, one one on radio, one on TV, and it, it really is just unbelievable. Also unbelievable, the Locked On Celtics podcast. Obviously, whatever you use to listen to podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Audio Boom, Stitcher, whatever else, search for Locked On Celtics podcast. Subscribe to us. Give us a five-star rating. We deserve it, and it helps us. It helps us go up the rankings it helps us get more listeners in the future so please please take a little time to do that uh we're we're back in in daily podcast mode the the season's almost coming we'll be able to talk about real basketball soon which is great but until then i mean you just got to cherish cherish the interviews you get with sean grandy who who has finally finally been a guest on our podcast thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon on the Lockdown Celtics Podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. Hi guys, this is Josh Lloyd, host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. The NBA is back, so that means that fantasy basketball is back in one form or another. We've got daily fantasy, but there's also some fantasy leagues with the resumption of play with these eight regular season games in Orlando, and Locked On Fantasy Basketball is going to have you covered. It's not just for fantasy basketball, though, because we recap all of the games across the NBA, so if you're looking for a broad overview of the action across the league every day, Locked On Fantasy Basketball is the podcast for you.